Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Hi, I'm Laura Bischoff. And I'm Jesse Balmert. We cover politics and state government for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Ohio is in the middle of the biggest public corruption case in state history. It involves a web of dark money, an Ohio-based Fortune 500 company, 4.5 million consumers, and some top politicos. The case already took some dramatic turns, arrests, guilty pleas, FBI searches, executive firings, and the suicide of one defendant. It's a lot. In this special episode of Ohio Politics Explained, we will walk you through the basics of bribery and racketeering and what federal prosecutors have to prove in court cases like this. Joining us is David DeVillers. He's the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Ohio. During his career as a federal prosecutor, DeVillers tried 24 jury trials. He knows the ins and outs of investigating and prosecuting money laundering, corruption, wire fraud, racketeering, and more. He's also a consultant for the Showtime show Billions, so he knows how to tell a story. Welcome to the show, and thanks for uh, joining us, David. Thanks for having me. So you were the U.S. attorney for the Southern District in Ohio when Larry Householders, the case first came into public view, and you held the press conference to announce the criminal charges. You know, what did that feel like, unveiling such a big case back in July of 2020? Well, we knew it was going to have an impact. Uh, we also knew, and I think we made it pretty clear at the time that in a lot of ways, that was kind of the beginning of the investigation. Um, we were eager to be able to go from from covert to non-covert and, and, and get some records and, and talk to some witnesses. So I, I was really think of it, in, it more of a, hey, now we can really start rolling with the investigation more than I was. You know, I'm a prosecutor, so I, I didn't really think about it so much as, you know, talking to the public. Oh, I realize that's important, especially as my role as U.S. attorney. We really thought of it more like, hey, let's let's start really rolling with this. So, like, I know you have to stick to what the Department of Justice calls the four corners of the indictment, which is fancy lingo for only talking about what has been filed in court. So, you know, let's get to that. Larry Householder and Borges are charged with racketeering and bribery. Can you just walk us through, like, what is bribery? What is quid pro quo? So they've actually, since the RICO, you can use state law as well. So the state, Ohio state bribery statute is part of it. But then there's there's two basic federal bribery sort of laws that we use when we're dealing with statewide officials. And I won't go into all the elements of it, but basically they're extremely similar. One deals more can deal with just public officials. Others deals with with anyone that has a fiduciary duty. But the bottom line is, yeah, you, you, you said quid pro quo, and that's what it is. So you have to prove that you've got something, some official act was done or conspiracy to get official act for something, something of value. And in this particular case, you know, it would be, um, oh, well, in any case, uh, often it's it's money. And and there's two different two different things, right? There's money going into the pocket of the public official, or there's money going into their campaign, or there's money going to like, like kind things like C4s or advertisements. You know, like, I guess what constitutes a bribe agreement? And, and does it have to be explicit? Like, here's a bag of money. Can you please do this for me? And or can it be more subtle? Good question, because it, it depends. So if the money is going into the pocket of the politician, of the public official, then it's an implicit quid pro quo, which you know can be the sort of thing. Hey, you should take a trip to uh, to Hawaii in my private jet, so uh, you can think about this uh, this particular legislation that's really important to the people of Ohio. That would probably be an implicit quid pro quo. An uh, explicit quid pro quo would be: Hey, you take a flight to Hawaii, and, and uh, 
I'll pay for the condo and you vote on this particular piece of legislation. Now, it also goes to jury instructions, right? So the jury instructions are, are really important when it comes to quid pro quo and whether it's explicit or implicit. But the Sixth Circuit pattern jury instructions, which, which you know, we, we always look at, it does a lot explaining what we don't have to prove. That is what the government doesn't have to prove to a jury. And that's, that's kind of the more important thing. It can be with winks and nods. Even an explicit quid pro quo can have winks and nods attached to it. Well, how do you document winks and nods? Well, you can do it by uh, witness statements. You can do it by circumstantial evidence. Um, you can do it by wiretaps or T3s, text messages, emails. The more you have, the better your case, right? Always. That makes sense. When I hear the charge racketeering, I tend to think of a mob boss or some sort of drug lord. I guess, how does it apply in this case? So I think you're right. That's mostly most of the cases that I personally did were gangs and organized crime. But you have situations where there's an enterprise, which is really pretty much just a group of people associated in fact. It could be a business. It could be a party. It could be a group of individuals um, planning something. So it's not so much. It's one of the things we kind of look. The element of that offense is is something that we really don't spend a lot of time on. If it's pretty clear that it's a group of people associated. In fact, it has to have some interstate nexus. That is, that is, it has to affect interstate commerce in some capacity. But it's pretty usually pretty easy thing to prove when it comes to public corruption cases because you're talking about using the internet. You're talking about wire transfers. You're talking about perhaps money laundering. And so much of this case involves what we call dark money. So these groups that are set up that don't need to disclose much about their donors. Is this a novel concept, dark money as bribe money? Well, it's the perfect animal for bribery. And it is because there is no requirement to report your donors. Unlike a super PAC that you, anyone could donate to, unions, companies, corporations could donate to unlimited amounts to super PAC, but it's regulated by the FEC and it has a duty to report its donors. C4s have no duty to report its donors, not only publicly, but even to the IRS. The IRS is over C4s, SC3s as well, but over C4s. And there's no, I think as of 2020, 2021, they no longer even require them to report to the IRS who your donors are. So it's actually gone backwards in the past six years. What's the fix then? Well, it'd be a legislative fix. The states do have power to require uh, that uh, C4s don't list their donors. They can do that. And, and the Supreme Court has not necessarily stated that there's some sort of constitutional right to, for anonymous donations. There is anonymous speech that's recognized, but anonymous donations have not. Then we talked a little bit before about one particular case from 60 years ago. But it, from, from my reading of that case, that would not apply to major political parties where the state has a, a vested, compelling interest in stopping corruption. Shifting gears a little bit, First Energy entered into this deferred prosecution agreement in July of 2021. It kind of agreed to forgo criminal charges or hold those in abeyance as long as they follow this agreement. And the charges that were involved there, conspiracy to commit honest services, wire fraud. I guess what is that? That's the corruption statute. There's two. That's one of them. Basically, the idea is that a politician or a CEO has a fiduciary duty to somebody. And honest service fraud would be a politician. You have fiduciary duty to your, your constituents. And when you're committing a fraud, that is, you're getting money or property, either by misrepresenting or material omissions, then that's in return for this as a quid pro quo, then that's that's a federal crime. You know, we've been watching House Bill 6 for a while, and I know that it was in the works, you know, well before it became public back in July of 2020. How long do federal prosecution corruption cases take to develop 
and to bring to trial? Well, that's a real fact-sensitive question. You know, it depends. <laughs> you know, often it's it's real it's a quick one-hitter. You know, there's you know the FBI's got a someone's wearing a wire and there's a there's a whistleblower something along those those lines. And then other times where you're building a large case in a conspiracy, you're often dealing with you know dozens of individuals, and and you may get the first one or two individuals, and then you have to build a case based on on them. You know, based on where where did the money go? Who else was involved? And that takes a long time. In any case, not just the white car cases, but any case involving a conspiracy. And you just need to follow where where all that goes. And that takes a while. Isn't it a matter of where, you know, you pull you pull thread from these one or two, you know, the whistleblower or the or a couple of witnesses who agree to plead guilty. And then that leads you to more and more and more. Yes. The ultimate idea is to move up, right? Or parallel, not down. But sometimes you, you do. You catch the big guy first and you want to get everybody. But ultimately, you want to kind of start on the lower level and move up to who really started this, who's really in charge. But sometimes that's difficult to do. I would think in some of these public corruption cases, because they involve elected officials and, you know, they have to get a lot of extra scrutiny from upper level management. I mean, you were the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, so you got to run the show, but you have you had bosses, right? So what kind of extra scrutiny do these cases get? Well, as, as much as you want as, as a U.S. attorney. The, the good thing about a U.S. attorney, you're, you're a presidential appointee, so the buck kind of stops with you uh, within DOJ. And there are only certain, there are very few crimes that you have to go to Department of Justice to, to get permission to indict or to investigate, none really to investigate. But you're supposed to, when it comes to public officials, statewide office holders, the policy of Department of Justice is that you go through a public integrity section of Department of Justice. There's an argument that a Speaker of the House, as Ohio is built, is not a statewide official because that person is not elected statewide, selected by the constituents of its jurisdiction and then by the individuals of the, the House. So the bottom line is you don't have to in situations where it doesn't fall under that preview. Now, clearly, you know, it's going like a big case, any big case is going to get some scrutiny from the DOJ as well as everybody else. So, you know, you, you definitely want to make sure that you've, you've done everything right. You've followed follow the policy. There's a thing called an urgent report. And if you have a big case and there's no real reason to report it to DOJ um, within you know about 24 or 48 hours before it becomes public, either via an indictment or a complaint or an announcement, that you you do a report and you send it to the deputy attorney general, uh, so they know it's going to happen. You know, we do that with all of our cases that we realize is going to get a large, you know, a large bit of attention. Is there a policy on not? charging public officials close to an election? Is there a rule of thumb for that? There is. Uh, and that's, um, I believe, I'm trying to think, it's it's months. It's like two or three months before an election not to, to prosecute. And, and, and within the, I believe in Cincinnati, we, we held off on Mr. Sittenfeld or one of the other councilmen because of that policy. We waited until the election was over and I forgot uh, who it was. It might have been Mr. Sinn. Is that policy actually written down somewhere? It is. Oh, okay. DOJ Journal. Interesting. And you talked about how some of these cases are pretty simple or, you know, quicker and some of them are more complex. Where does this householder House Bill 6 case fall on the level of complexity? Well, without, again, sticking to the four corners of the indictment and not getting, you know, I don't want to get in, uh, my, my colleagues that are still working for Southern District of Ohio in trouble. Um, but yeah, clearly it's very complicated. And again, and I won't stress enough is is you know that the in a lot of ways the investigation just started. So it it's it's even way more complicated, I'm sure, since I've left. Right. So it, it's uh, it's a big case, lots of paperwork, lots of documents, lots of individuals. Makes sense. 
I think there's sometimes this public perception that there's money in politics and this is kind of business as usual. I guess, why is public corruption bad? What is the effect on democracy? Well, everything begins and ends with rule of law. You know, I, I spent a lot of time overseas working with, with countries that are emerging from the Soviet Union. I lived in the, in the Republic of Georgia and in Ukraine and worked with them on, on, on this, this very issue. And the, the truth is, you know, if your politicians are corrupt, if particularly your lawmakers are corrupt, how are you as a society who are supposed to follow these laws that they're creating if they're not following them themselves? So it, there's a huge amount of distrust in politicians that don't follow the rule of law and also a whole huge amount of trust with prosecutors that don't prosecute under the rule of law. So that, that kind of covers the ground that we wanted to. Is there anything you want to add? No, <laughs> not that I can think. Where are you going to Where are you going to watch the uh, the trial if if it actually goes to trial in uh, in January? You're going to go down to Cincinnati I, and sit in the pew? I absolutely am not. So I will not be doing that. I, I will pay attention on that. This is as you. I'll be reading the dispatch. Okay. Well, you'll be reading me and Jesse because we plan on being being there, gavel to gavel. Sounds good. Appreciate you taking the time here today. No problem. Yeah. Thanks. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn about any of the topics we covered today, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like CantonRep.com. 